Hi there, you're listening to the Venture Builder Map podcast. My name is Andries DeVos. I'm the co-founder of Slash, a Singapore-based venture builder. Every week I come together with brilliant minds to talk about how venture building is changing the way startups are incubated and corporate innovation is evolving. Startup founders are wonderful people, and sometimes you see them rushing towards an iceberg, and you say, guys, go left or go right, do anything, but just don't go straight ahead, and they go smack straight ahead. If I were doing that all over again, um, I probably would have a narrow focus on one sector. Fundamental metric, I think, for any accelerator, which is recruiting startup teams from the wild, is the quality of the teams that you're finally able to select. Joyful Frog Digital Incubator. If I go and speak at a conference in Vietnam or something, there'll be someone that comes up to me and goes, oh, Frogman, Frogman. My guest today is Hugh Mason, the co-founder and CEO of JFDI, a Singapore-based accelerator that has built over 70 startups since 2012. Hugh has a colorful background as serial entrepreneur in the broadcast industry, software, and technology space, as well as investor and university lecturer. So it's incredibly exciting to hear his thoughts on venture building. In this episode, we will cover his experience from running JFDI, one of the pioneers of the accelerator model in Asia, and what he would do differently today if he were to start over again. Getting started, what is the history behind JFDI and what was your founding vision? So the background to JFDI is actually a co-working space. My co-founder, Wang Mengwei and I got together and we realized here in Singapore there was fantastic intellectual capital, lots of smart people, and there was great financial capital, lots of money, still is. But there was no social capital for entrepreneurship. There was no place that people could come together, hang out, exchange visions and so on. And both of us had realized that that was a hugely important thing for a, a startup ecosystem. So the real vision for JFDI, to be honest, was about ecosystem building uh, 10 years ago. seems extraordinary now when, when Singapore and Southeast Asia have got so much more dynamic. Uh, but back then, uh, there was very little in the way of ecosystem. Why did you set up the JFDI business model as an accelerator? So it's really, uh, it was a really interesting sort of accidental thing. Um, again, very odd to think of it now, but 10 years ago, I think we were some of the first guests at a very early tech conference. It was like 100 people in a borrowed kind of room at a university here. And one of the speakers uh, was a guy called David Cohen, uh, who'd come from Techstars, this accelerator we'd heard of in, in, in Colorado, in Boulder. And he was really interesting because he didn't come from Silicon Valley. We thought to ourselves, well, Here's basically a very small town with 120,000 odd people. It's got some wealthy retirees. It's got some nice mountains and a small liberal arts college. And somehow or other, this guy has managed to create a community which kind of spawns startups, you know, kind of school for startups, like a piece of community theater that comes together several times a year. And we thought that's amazing. If that could work in, in Boulder, Colorado, then surely it could work in Singapore too. So while our intention had been to do community building initially, and that's why we set up the first co-working space on the island, the accelerator was something we, we hadn't imagined that we'd set one up. Um, but actually, it was David Kine himself who called me one day and said, you know, I've been asked to set this up in Singapore. I don't want to do it. Do you guys want to do it? And we looked at each other and thought, well, actually, that's a good idea. So I think we incorporated a few days later. When you started JFDI, did you ever expect it would take six years of your life and you'd end up with 60 plus startups? Yes, we did. I mean, and one of the things that was immensely helpful getting going was a community that was building around Techstars. So Techstars got going, I think, around 2006, 2007, shortly after Y Combinator. And very quickly, lots of people around the world besieged Techstars 
you know, asking for information, saying, this is great, can we do one in our city? And so Techstars was setting up a, um, a kind of an international um, network. The message we got strongly from the founders of Techstars, and it's something that Brad felt, uh, the other founder, one of the other founders of Techstars, talks about a lot, is that if you're going to build an ecosystem, it's a 20-year project. I don't think Meng and I started, in fact, I know we didn't. There were people like Professor Wong Po Kam here in Singapore who set up the Business Angel Network five years before us. There are many, many, many other people who were involved in seeding this. So I think we came into the journey kind of three or four years into it and it was the right time to do an accelerator. So basically, we were the right guys in the right place. I once read that no one gets a Suzuki tattoo, only a Harley Davidson tattoo. In other words, your brand matters. When I founded my first company in 2011 in Singapore, I probably became aware of the startup ecosystem around that time and, and came across JFDI. And I always recall that JFDI had a very strong brand. How do you create it? Well, it's an interesting story, actually. So Meng and I sat down and we said, well, what, what is the spirit of entrepreneurship? And we came to the conclusion it was this phrase that many people in the West know, JFDI, just fucking do it, right? Mm -hmm. That's what entrepreneurs do. And we thought to ourselves, I wonder if they'll let us incorporate a business here in Singapore called JFDI Asia, because everyone from the West is going to laugh like when they see this name. And we were in discussions with um, investors at this point, uh, including a government-linked fund, and we told ourselves that the whole point of JFDI Asia is we're going to help startups raise money in 100 days. So if we can't get interest from investors in 100 days, we're totally bogus. This is not going to work. And on day 94, this government-linked fund you know, started expressing strong interest. And we thought, wow, what are we, what are we going to tell them? And we were driving through uh, Geylang here in, in Singapore, which for anyone who hasn't visited the island, is one of the red light districts on the island with fantastic food. And there's also, a, a, it's famous for a shop there called the Eminent Frog Porridge Shop. It sells choo-choo frog porridge. And I don't know why, it just popped into my head, or let's tell them it's the Joyful Frog Digital Innovation Company or something like that. Um, and we both fell about laughing uh, in the car. And then we got some friends who were Chinese scholars to actually translate the phrase, well, Joyful Frog Digital Incubator, to translate that into Chinese characters so it looked kind of official. The next part of that story is we then found... Um, Again, this is a lot of luck here, but we, we were looking for sort of logos and things, and we found this stock art. Um, we, got, we bought for like $100, I think. We bought like 400 poses of this little frog, and, and everybody loved it. And the great thing then we found was that all around Asia, other people had used this same stock art, you know, that you can buy on one of those libraries online. So people would send us photos of like a cafe in Cambodia and they say, hey, this cafe in Cambodia has got your logo off on the wall. Isn't that cool? And we go, yeah, that's really cool. Will you treat it out for us? So they did. <laughs> and then we found online some beanie babies, these little kind of cuddly toys that were frogs that looked just like the logo. So we bought loads of them and we gave them to sort of senior executives from IT companies and investors and people like that. And we said, when you're traveling around the world, please will you take a picture of the frog, like in front of the Eiffel Tower, in front of the Golden Gate Bridge, things like this. You know, we'll do this whole kind of story about this frog. And very quickly, it, it turned out to be a huge asset for us because, as you all know, one of the issues of Southeast Asia is there are many different languages. But basically, everyone likes frogs. Frogs are okay. And nobody's got like a bad story or a bad rap about frogs. So I, I still to this day, if I go and speak at a conference in Vietnam or something, there'll be someone that comes up to me and goes, oh, frogman, frogman. When you were running JFDI, what metrics were you keeping track of on a regular basis? What metric or metrics mattered most to you? We realized very early on that an accelerator lives or dies on the quality of the people that come into it 
and the quality of mentors that they have to support them growing. But the really key thing for us, I think that's actually more important than the money that you put into startups, anything else. People often join an, join an accelerator thinking that it's, you know, how much money am I going to get out of this or something? It's not really about that at all. Once you've been through an accelerator, you realize it's dead easy to raise, you know, $25,000, $100,000 if you know what you're doing. The key is to know what you're doing. So that means you need to be surrounded by great people as your team members, and you also need great mentors around you. So the key thing we started off with is, can we get mentors to come to us? Can we create an ecosystem where mentors will come and share their wisdom for free? It was very clear to us that we, we, there was no way we could afford to pay people who were successful entrepreneurs you know, a reasonable market rate. We had to give them something else in return. So the very thing, first thing we tested, our minimum viable prototype, if you like, immediately after incorporating was, can we create a sort of mentoring program? At that time, there's a lot of interest from Silicon Valley in Southeast Asia. Can we make it attractive for people to come from Silicon Valley to hang out in Southeast Asia and spend time with great entrepreneurs? And we found that if we curated that experience and made it good for the mentors, then actually they would come for free. So that was the first thing we tested. Will the mentors come for free? Second, the big metric after that really was the number of people applying and the selection process. So I think we, and, and we had a rather interesting discussion there, which was how do you select people for an accelerator? How do you select teams? You do need a reasonable volume of people that you're speaking with. And I think for most accelerators, you probably need 15 or 20 times the number of startups that you're trying to recruit. If you haven't got that many applying, um, you're not going to get quality at the end. If you've only got twice the number, you know, and you're accepting one in two. So we ended up being more selective than, you know, Harvard or Yale or Stanford. I think we, would, we ended up taking about four or five but, four to five percent of the teams that applied fundamental metric i think for any accelerator which is recruiting startup teams from the wild is the quality of the teams that you're finally able to select so these are all fairly top line metrics and lagging indicators what were the signals you were looking for on a daily basis or the metrics you were looking for on a daily basis to say right we're on track here so i think there were there were several phases to it when we done when we were doing our very first batch of startups here in singapore we didn't know whether the accelerator format was going to work in asia for example you know a lot of uh, you know a lot of silicon valley culture is is very sort of rah 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 very extroverts crushing it all that kind of bro type stuff you know and that's not very Asian, to be perfectly honest. And so we weren't sure at all whether that was going to work. So our leading indicator at first was, does anyone care about this? Are they engaged? So the very first thing we did with, with great help from Singtel Innovate, who sponsored us to run a series of startup weekends around the, around the region. You know, at that time, no one had run a startup weekend in Manila. No one had run a startup weekend in Gagawan. No one had run a startup weekend in Bangkok. So with support from um, Singtel Innovate and some local partners, we ran the first startup weekends in about six um, major cities around Southeast Asia. And we were just astonished that people were so interested. I mean, in every venue, we, uh, you know, we could only take about 250 people. And by the time we got 300, 400 people trying to come into our startup weekend, we thought, wow, the, ti the timing is right. The, the hunger is there for that. So that was a hugely leading indicator for us. Are people applying? Are they taking, do they care? Um, and then I guess the, the next thing was once we started evaluating teams that were applying to us, we realize that we can't pick winners. You know, Meng and I have both been involved in angel investing before. And as anyone who's done that will know, it's very, very hard to pick winners. You, you always believe that the companies you put cash into are going to succeed, of course. But in practice, you know, the, the hit rate for pre-seed investment is one in 10 if you're lucky. It certainly has been for us. When you get it right, the returns are great. But 
you know, when you get it wrong nine out of 10 times, you have to think, what am I doing? So the actual selection process that we use was a negative one. We put together a series of patterns for failure modes, things that we knew that startups get wrong. And we selected against negativity. We selected the least flawed teams. And we looked for teams that were closely matched to us. In other words, they had a reason to do their project in Southeast Asia. And we looked for a reason why that team is the best team in the world to do this project. What is it about this team that gives them an insight? And some of the situations where that didn't turn out were quite funny. I remember these kind of two guys, they were almost wearing suits. They were kind of just out of Wharton Business School and they rucked up and they sat there and pitched us this sort of very MBA style vision for a women's shoe company online, like selling, retailing women's shoes, kind of Amazon for shoes. And Meng sat there listening to them and kind of nodding very wisely. And once the guy had finished after about 10 minutes, he looked him straight in the eye and said, so when was the last time you actually bought women's shoes? <laughs> this guy kind of melted. Because of, so these guys had thought themselves into the process of kind of selling women's shoes online, but they hadn't got a clue. Like they looked like the kind of, from the way they were dressed, you could tell that they were the, like me. They were the kind of guys who would depend on a wife or a girlfriend to choose clothes for them, let alone shoes. They had no domain insight, you know. Um, and, and time again, we, we found those sort of classic flaws like that. So as we, one of the advantages of having hundreds of teams applying to us was that we got to see regular patterns and to document those and then to select against the negative patterns. Have you ever felt like you were pushing your business downhill as opposed to pushing it uphill where every day is a struggle? Like, did you, did you feel like you got this to a stage where the business was, became easier to run and was running by itself? I, I think we never quite got to that, that stage on all fronts. I mean, you know, there were moments in sort of 2012 when we were completely overwhelmed by the interest and thought, this is fantastic. It was like a riot. It was a party every night. That was great. <laughs> However, it was still extremely difficult to raise money for an accelerator. It was extremely difficult to raise money for startups. I mean, at that time, 10 years ago in Southeast Asia, most of the wealthy families, high net worth individuals who, who, who actually have the wealth here were very familiar with, you know, bricks and mortar businesses, fast food, shopping malls, stuff like this. But the idea of investing in this, you know, software thing, what the hell is that? And then, you know, if I invest in a shopping mall, I can get rent from the tenants every month. If I invest in oil palm, I can, you know, milk the trees several times a year. But if I invest in a startup thing, I have to spend like years and then it might be worth a billion dollars or it might be worth nothing. Why would I do that? You know, so the whole idea of startups as an asset class was we, we never got to stage. And we ended up actually wrapping up. We had a very similar path in retrospect to a couple of other first generation Asian or APAC accelerators. Polonizer in, in Australia did a similar number of startups to us. And then like us, found that the willing investors, the people who were willing to take a risk that early on, um, had, you know, we'd milk them for all that they were worth. Um, likewise, there were a couple of Indian accelerators that likewise set, you know, set up and did about 70 or 80 startups, maybe over two or three years, and then found it hard to sustain. There were a few in the region, Spark Labs in Korea, uh, again, part of the te Techstars network that became the Global Accelerator Network. They were able to, enough to keep raising money and still to this day are very successful on basically keeping going with the same model. <clears throat> But for us here in Singapore, we got to the situation like Polonizer, where mainstream of investors were saying to us, well, these guys gave you money three years ago. So where's the billion dollars that these startups are worth? You know, it's like I gave you apple seeds last week. So where's my apples, buddy? You know, it's like and, and I can understand that because when you come from a background of investing in traditional investments that start yielding very quickly, 
You know, you buy a condominium, you can rent it out to someone and you get rent every month. So it's a very unfamiliar idea that you have to wait for revenue and that sort of thing. Yeah. So I think we were, we were right people in terms of the model in some ways and in other ways. If we'd had deeper pockets, not only would we have been able to carry on longer, but I also think we'd have been able to double down on the successful businesses and, and capture more value from what we've created. Uh, and that's just a function of, the, of, of timing in the marketplace, really. At what time did the idea of doing a corporate startup come to you? At some point, you start pivoting away from grassroots entrepreneurs to doing programs for corporates. Yeah, so by, basically, by the time we got to 20, end of 2015, we'd done seven batches of our accelerator. We deployed about $3 million into uh, 70 startups. And, um, and we were quite exhausted. There were loads and loads of copies of us appearing, which is a compliment, yeah. but that's great. However, to be perfectly honest, we could see that many of them were set up by people who had zero startup experience at all. They were being set up by well-intentioned civil servants um, and academics at polytechnics and things like this. And we just thought to ourselves, this is going to be so confusing for any startup founder. And the, the valuations that startups are going to expect are going to go sky high because they get, they're going to think they're in a competitive market for their brilliant idea and also the you know the whole accelerator scene in singapore is going to get a bad rap because there's going to be loads of bad quality programs out there so we thought to ourselves let's quit while we're ahead you know we've deployed the capital that we've raised we've now got a portfolio of 70 companies i think we would have liked ideally to have maybe 100 150 but we thought 70 was a reasonable enough kind of sample size that in there we should have a few hits and that's actually turned out to be the case Meanwhile, uh, a completely unexpected thing had happened, which was that corporates were banging on the door. So for those of you listening who don't know Singapore, it's, it's home to about 7,000 multinational corporations. Um, and many of them face challenges of innovation, of course, like, like corporations do everywhere. And they came to us and they said, this is extraordinary. You guys are creating you know, new businesses with revenue and you're doing it for you know under a couple of, under a quarter of a million dollars and you're doing it in two quarters um, it takes us 20 signatures at main board level it takes 25 people and several million dollars you know to get a new business venture off the ground how can we work together um, at the end of 2015 when we decided to call a halt to the active acceleration process meng took part of the process that we developed internally off and, and built a business called legalese around our contract management system for startup documentation um, and I took this interest in corporate innovation and for about three or four years tried to do corporate innovation here in Singapore. So you touched on the idea that it can be difficult for a corporate to build a venture or an accelerator. In particular, you shared that ego is an aspect that can be quite challenging for corporate executives you know, running a new venture function. Can you share some of the challenges you faced yourself parting with those corporate venture builders? In 2016, when I sort of dived into the corporate space, I, I'd had sort of about 30, 40, 50 multinationals here in Singapore bang on the door of us at JFDI saying, this is amazing what you're doing. Can you work with us? And I dived in and tried to work with them and very quickly came up against the same kind of cultural clashes that everybody meets when they try to bring startup thinking into a corporate environment. And you realize, and the, the immediate personal realization for me was now, aha, I realized why 20 years ago I didn't become a management consultant. You know, I became an entrepreneur. <laughs> this was a lifestyle choice. And then I think as, as, the, as the months went by and I was finding, I was getting paid well doing this stuff for corporations, but it wasn't enjoyable. It was like walking through concrete. I started to reach out to other people who were doing similar work worldwide. And we realized together, um, chatting in sort of groups on, on WhatsApp and things, that 
that actually everyone was meeting the same challenges. The best model I've come across to understand why those challenges occur is a thing called the three horizons of growth. I don't know if anyone listening to this has come across that. There are many different representations of it, but the one that I find most useful, if you imagine a graph that on the bottom axis from left to right shows technology, um, from yesterday's technology through to kind of today's technology through to future technology. So it's a kind of time axis, if you like. And then on the vertical axis, you can imagine going from at the bottom, stuff that we do today and markets we know, up to the top being markets we've never even thought about exploring and business models that we haven't ever investigated. So the vertical axis is about business model innovation. The horizontal axis is about technology. Most people in most corporations are working with yesterday's technology, yesterday's business models for customers that they already know. Of course they are. That's how the company makes steady money. However, if you want to investigate the future, you need to push outside that bubble that's sometimes called Horizon 1. You need to move into the adjacent areas of technology that's just coming onto market. You need to stay current with technology. And you need to move into new business models and markets that you haven't explored. Everything inside a corporation is designed to avoid making mistakes. You know, one of the great experiences I had was working with Bosch over a period of about four years. And we used to have very, very honest discussions about the cultural differences between us. Bosch and corporates don't need a company like JFDI or any venture studio to do innovation in Horizon 1. If you're doing stuff with your existing markets, your existing business model, and you're just applying you know, to technology that exists, it's a procurement exercise. It is innovation, but it's the kind of stuff that chief financial officers like doing. It's about reducing costs. If you're doing innovation that's in Horizon 2, it's the kind of stuff that the chief executive likes talking about. It's you know building on our strengths, adopting the latest technology that's already been de-risked by somebody else, and stuff like that. What you don't want to be doing as a corporation is that weird, weird stuff that the people in the R&D lab talk about. People like to wear T-shirts that say, you know, I'm a disruptive innovator and all that crap. But you don't actually want to do that inside a corporation because you're going to lose your job. It's a bit like rock stars and porn stars. And the reason we have porn stars is to show us all the stuff we fantasize about doing but don't dare actually having a go at. In the same way with rock stars, you know, Jimi Hendrix had to die choking on his own vomit. I'm sorry, you know, but it was, it was part of his destiny. If Jimi Hendrix had become old and boring, he wouldn't be Jimi Hendrix, right? The whole point of a rock star is that they do outrageous stuff. The whole point about disruptive innovators is that they're disruptive and they're doing stuff, you know, with new technology and new business models that seems scary. And that's why someone like Elon Musk is sexy to the general public. And it's why every boring CEO sat in a cubicle, you know, thinking, I've got my sunset industry and it's tanking, wishes they were Elon Musk some days. And then other days they look at their salary coming through the door every every month and think, uh, actually, do I really care that much? But there is a huge cultural clash between what a corporation is set up to do. And Steve Blank describes this very well. He says, you know, there are two phases of building a business. There's the discovery phase when you're doing that Horizon 3 stuff. You're trying to figure out product market fit. And then once you've got product market fit, that's time to bring the MBAs in, bring in the suits, scale it up, you know, do it. And to me, that's when the business becomes boring, personally. But, that, but that's what businesses are very good at. I'm very glad that those businesses exist. You know, I'm, I would rather have Boeing, by and large, and Airbus building the aircraft I fly in than Elon Musk. You know, would you get into an aircraft that Elon Musk had designed? Probably not. You would if you're the kind of person who wants to go into space because you've already decided that you want to do that, right? But the vast majority of people don't want to take that risk. So I think, yeah, we have different kinds of people, different kinds of structures, different kinds of... Um, cultures and mm -hmm. they're all good they're different it's not like one's better than the other 
But I do think it, it raises an interesting question, which is if you are a corporation and you need to avoid getting disrupted and you need to keep on innovating for the future, how do you do innovation? And the academics would say that what you need to do is to create what they call an innovation framework. You know, it's no good sending all your staff on a design thinking course and all having them wear T-shirts and go, rah, 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 we're going to have a hackathon. If when they come back to work on Monday, the boss goes, oh, no, I haven't done that before. Oh, sounds a bit risky. Oh, I can't do that. If there's no way to follow through on the ideas, it's just going to die. So that's the problem is that the corporations are fundamentally staffed with people for very good reasons who are trying to avoid making mistakes. And I'm not saying that startups set out to achieve mistakes, but if you're fearful of taking a risk, you won't ever get to the future. You'll just sit in the cave. You'll sit doing what, what feels comfortable. And I'm very glad that there are companies out there that focus on doing you know, what we know and understand and doing it very well. I don't want my bank taking massive risks with my money. I do want the, um, you know, the fund manager that I've put some of my money into for a high-risk fund. I do want them to take risks but I don't want the bank doing it. I guess this is the million-dollar question, uh, and, and there's always a historical context, but with hindsight, were there things that could have made your life easier? And looking back now, what would you have done differently? It's really interesting. I mean, I've often asked myself, you know, if I was going to do this again, would I do it the same way? And I think the answer is that the ecosystem is different now. Very, very different. You know, the, the mission of JFDI in 2010, when we were setting up, was really to, first of all, create an ecosystem, and second, to get startups to investment readiness, digital startups, to the point where they're investable. And that was our only, and we, you know, we had no sector focus. It was just digital businesses, B2C, B2B. And if I were doing that all over again, um, I probably would have a narrow focus on one sector where I had access to distribution into that sector so that I could promise the startups not just money, but also, you know, first customers. I would probably build something much more like a venture studio where we captured more of the value in what was created. Um, because one of the things that was painful about watching, you know, for anyone running an accelerator, is... Um, it's a bit like running a primary school. You know, you, you, you recruit everybody that comes in with the best of hope. <laughs> and startup founders are wonderful people. And sometimes you see them rushing towards an iceberg and you say, guys, go left or go right. Do anything, but just don't go straight ahead. And they go smack straight ahead. And, you know, it's like dealing with sort of four-year-old boys. So I think, it, you know, was there, a, was there a, uh, something that could have got us to, to a longer-term model? I think if we found a few more investors earlier, we could probably have kept going. Would we have got, you know, destroyed anyway by the fact that there were so many poor-quality copies of what we were doing here in Singapore and the region? Probably. So I think probably what we did was, you know, the right thing at the right time, and it's created a good return for our investors, and we were probably right to call an end to it when we did that's that's probably my view and if i was to do it over again now it's a different environment and, and we know a lot more now about the processes of running a venture studio or an accelerator so i think i would do it differently then thank you for listening if you found this discussion valuable and don't want to miss any future episodes go to apple podcasts and spotify search for the vb map podcast and subscribe